Tonight's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, which you can find uh, in your church Bibles on page 1233. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "'Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last.' I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, friends. It's nice to be with you. My name's Adam. I am the curate here. Um, For the very first time, I think, in my preaching ministry, certainly my first time preaching here, I have three points for you this evening, all beginning with the same letter. Uh, This is a favourite of Anglican clergy all around the country. I don't know whether this means that my curacy is slowly but surely coming to an end uh, and I'm fully forming into a proper vicar. Uh, I'm sure that's not true. But anyway, we have three points to think about from this passage this evening. But before we think about those, let's pray together. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you that it is food to us. And as we come together and read this passage together, as we study these words together, would you help your word to dwell deep within us? Would you help us to know your living word at work in us and through us, we pray. Amen. Amen. H.G. Wells apparently once said uh, that the book of Revelation is only read by cranks and lunatics. Uh, a bit harsh, I think. Uh, perhaps I prefer verse 3, which Rich just read to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it, because the time is near. But why did H.G. Wells say that about this uh, book? Why did he think that it was only read by cranks and lunatics? Well, I suspect because Revelation over the years has been dismissed a bit as apocalyptic nonsense or dismissed as too complicated for us to even begin to understand. And we have an interesting relationship with that word apocalypse, don't we, or apocalyptic. Uh, think about the apocalyptic films that we see in the theatres, or perhaps the fiction that we read. Indeed, uh, you might have seen uh, this sign going up around the country and on Facebook, uh, outside bookshops. It says, post-apocalyptic fiction has been moved to our current affairs section. But the word apocalypse simply means unveiling or revealing something. The word, the word that the translators use for this, chapter, for this book, Revelation, could easily have been apocalypse. It just means to reveal something. And the most common mistake that we make is to use the book of Revelation as some sort of handbook telling us exactly what is going to happen next, expecting it just to reveal to us the future. And when we do that, we often miss the point of this book, I think. It's happened throughout uh, our human history for thousands of years. People have predicted the day when Christ would return. In 2011, thousands of people uh, believed that Christ would return on the 21st of May. Churches around, particularly in America, but churches around the world put up posters on sides of the road like this saying that Christ would return. Houses were sold. Pets were unfortunately put to sleep. Fortunes were spent. And then the 22nd of May 2011 came. Perhaps ungraciously, some of the other churches in America changed the billboard signs to read this. That was awkward. No one knows the day or the hour. Those famous words from Scripture. Revelation has got prophecy in it. Indeed, at college, we were taught that the whole of Revelation can be summed up in verse 19, uh, which says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This book is about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. But crucially, Revelation is revealing to us who God is. And it's done at the most opportune of times for John. It says within the passage that this book is written to seven churches now based within modern-day Turkey. These churches found themselves in a consumer-driven culture where sexual decadence was rife 
where the authorities were putting pressure on the Christians, on the religious there, to conform to the ways of the world, where persecution was growing. The audience John is writing to were likely wondering what on earth was going to happen next. This book then, and perhaps these letters, are written at an opportune time for us. As we look around in the world, we might also wonder what on earth is going to happen next. T.S. Eliot uh, once said that destiny waits in the hands of God, not in the hands of statesmen. Destiny waits in the hands of God, not the hands of statesmen. And my first P, my first of the three letters this evening is power, specifically God's power at work in us. Verse 8 from our reading, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In this book, God is showing us who he is. He is the almighty one, the one who was, who, who is, who was, and who is to come. I don't know if you've had a chance ever to read this book uh, by Simon Ponsonby. Excellent book. I can highly recommend it to you. He says this, Ultimately, the king in his kingdom will reign. Then every spurious and pretentious kingdom will be overthrown, whether it's in our individual souls in the structures of society, or in the spiritual realms. The king in his kingdom will reign and overthrow every spurious kingdom, whether it's in our souls, in the world around us, in the spiritual realms. Simon Ponsonby has a regular phrase that he uses when he goes places, and he says, I've read to the end of the book, meaning this one, not this one, he's read to the end of that one, I assume, Um, meaning he's read to the end of the book, and the lamb wins. This book takes the title from it. God will have the ultimate victory, and we are called to look for his coming. Verse 7 of our reading said he is coming with the clouds. And if you know your Lord of the Rings, uh, you may well think to the battle at Helm's Deep when all hope feels like it's lost. And then they remember Gandalf's word to look for his coming at dawn on the fifth day. The imagery that Tolkien uses is not accidental. We are to be people who look for God's coming and to know his power in our world. What does that mean for us, I wonder? Well, it means, of course, that we're called to be people who place our hope in God. But I think that hope sometimes can feel a bit passive. Perhaps we can see this great big thing hanging over us. Maybe it's Brexit. Maybe there's something going on in our own life that we just lose all hope over. We feel dismayed about. And we think there is just nothing that can be done about this. And then we remember that God is king. And so we place our hope in him. And then we go and have a little sleep because that's just what it makes life better. And there's nothing wrong with sleep unless you have a newborn in the house, apparently. Um, But hope is not just a passive thing. When we place our hope in God, we shouldn't just become passive. Revelation is also prophecy. Christ will return to reclaim his bride. I wonder if we will be awake when he does. I used this example before the summer, but one of the things I love doing here is taking weddings. 
And one of the things I've noticed is that as the bride gets out of the car, other cars as they drive past will slow down to stare at the bride as she enters the church. It is not the feature of the day, it is a feature of the day that brides turn heads. I wonder if Christ's bride turns heads. If you were here when Andrew Dow spoke to us about Revelation just before Easter, he said this, the book of Revelation is not just written to excite our imaginations, nor is it written to satisfy the curious about the future. It's a call to repentance, to holy behavior, and to outrageous faith in God. Simon Ponsonby in here gives uh, the example of a fire that spread around America in the 1780s. Many people were overcome with fear because of this fire, believing it was signaling the end times and the return of Christ. The local government was due to uh, meet on one of the days and the darkness was so thick that people called for the meeting to be adjourned. The leader resisted this and said... Either the day of judgment is at hand, or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I wish to be found in the line of duty. So bring me some candles. We are we people who long to be found in the line of duty when Christ returns? Or are we so consumed by the issue of the day, whether that's the issues outside of ourselves or the issues going on in our own minds, that we feel hopeless to deal with it. As I often do, I'd love to give us just a moment to reflect on some of these things as we go through. So just have a moment of quiet to think about that. Do you know God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Are you living in such a way that reveals that you believe God to be King of Kings over all things? Just have a moment whilst I grab some water. reminded of a question I was once asked if you were arrested tomorrow on the charge of being a follower of Christ would there be enough evidence to convict you on to my second p then and it's perhaps a little bit uh, dubious there could have been one of two p's that I went with here I went with perceived how do you think you are perceived by God what do you think that God thinks about you do you think that God does think about you Or do you think of him still as this distant deity, unreachable perhaps? We're not, as I've said, looking at the seven letters particularly uh, today. We'll do that over the next term. However, each of them is written in a similar pattern. And each one of them begins in the first verse or two with the words, I know. I know. God is a God who sees and who knows. He doesn't just see the big things going on in the world. He sees the small things going on in each of our lives. Looking at our own passage from verse 17 this evening, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet. I'll come back to that in a moment. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. My second P could have been personable. 
the God who John encounters here, cares for him. He places his hand on him and speaks to reassure and to comfort him. We have a God who loves us and who knows us intimately. Many of you know that before I came uh, to be curate here, I was the operations manager of a church in Bristol. Uh, Many of you also know that in order to be a vicar, you have to go through something that's not called selection, but feels an awful lot like selection. In fact, it feels a lot like the interviews that you have to go through on The Apprentice uh, at the very end, only perhaps slightly less cuddly. Um, In any case, I unfortunately had to go through two of those because the first time that I went through, they said, no, uh, Adam, I don't think you should be ordained on this occasion. And I found that out on a Monday evening a few years ago. Uh, And as I say, I was the operations manager of the church. There was an event happening at church that evening, uh, which I wasn't involved in, but they had the same chairs that we have here, and all of them had been cleared. And in my diary on the Tuesday morning uh, was to reset the church ready for the services on the coming Sunday. Now, um, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with these chairs. I love them in terms of, I quite like, I think they're, personally think they're quite comfortable and uh, they're very useful from a flexibility perspective, but I absolutely hate having to be the one that puts them out, uh, if I'm honest. And on that particular Tuesday morning, feeling very grumpy and very sad and very hurt that I'd sensed God tell me I was going to be a vicar and suddenly I wasn't, I spent three hours arguing, wrestling and hurt with God, putting these chairs out with a bad back as well. Uh, I did that and then uh, went and had some lunch. And then on Tuesday afternoon, we always had staff meeting, which always began uh, with worship together. Uh, And as the staff team began to arrive, I noticed that somebody new was amongst them uh, and I didn't recognize them. It turned out to be a friend of one of our staff members who was visiting, had arrived that morning uh, from America. No one in the staff team knew at that point that I hadn't got through uh, the selection process. No one knew that I'd spent three hours putting chairs out and was particularly grumpy. We began to worship and I was still feeling this pain and hurt inside. And so I sat on one of these blooming chairs uh, and uh, continued to argue with God about what was going on in my life. This chap who had never met before came and sat down next to me. And he said this, I wrote it down afterwards. He said... Uh, This is a weird one, but I have a sense that God wants you to know that you're not going to be moving chairs for the rest of your life, that you know what he has planned for you. Rest in the hope that you have. Now, my first response when he said that to me was, how did you know? Uh, As is often the case when people speak prophecy into our lives. He didn't know. God knew. My second response was truthfully to cry. And it's been a common theme with our original design appointments, something we do as part of living here, free here. People will often say, how did you know? It's not us that know, it is God who knows us. The God who John experiences in our passage here, the God who speaks to the seven churches and says, I know, says to us this evening, I know. I know you, whatever it is you're going through at the moment, whatever it is that's occupying your minds and your thoughts, I know. How do we respond to that, I wonder? I'd love to say uh, that ever since that chair prophecy, as I like to call it, uh, that chair prophecy, I have never again uh, put anything in the way of my relationship with God. Uh, I've never again sinned in the last eight years. Um, I've spent every second of every day worshipping the Lord. I'd like to say that, but if you uh, know me at all, you will know that that would be a lie. 
A friend recently told me that Joyce Mayer writes this, I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but I thank the Lord that I'm not where I was. We're called into a personal relationship with God, where we know him and where we are known by him. But like any relationship, it will take work. Again, I've said this before, but it's a good illustration. I wear a wedding ring. It signifies that I am married. I'm married to Jess. But if that was all there was that signified my marriage to Jess, it wouldn't be the best of marriages. If I never spoke to her, after an hour or two, she might, uh, she might be relieved for the first couple of hours, but after an hour or two, uh, she'd probably miss me, I'd hope. If I never saw her, she would miss me. If I didn't prioritise her, what sort of relationship would we have? It's just the same with God. To grow in our relationship with him, it will take work, both in terms of how we perceive him and how we are perceived by him, but also just simply in terms of making time and space to be with him. So presence, uh, perceive then, how are we perceived by God? My second, and how do we perceive God? My second point. Let's just have another moment of quiet to think about this. Do you know that you are known? Uh, my quiet times have been taken up by a song written by a friend of mine uh, in Bristol that simply has the refrain, Lord, we give you the space, come and speak as you desire. Just in this moment of quiet, Lord, we do give you the space, come and speak as you desire. bit more space in a moment. My third P then is presence, specifically the presence of God. Uh, I don't know what you think about the royal family, what you think about the queen. If like me, you're rather fond of, of the queen, use her for this analogy. If uh, for some reason you're anti-queen, uh, um, then think of someone else uh, who's in the public eye who you're fond of. And imagine that you got a text message this morning or a phone call telling you that the queen was going to be at our 6.30 service at St. Paul's this evening. Imagine if that had happened or whoever it was. How would you prepare yourself before you left home to come to church? How quickly would you arrive at church? Would you be late in order to worship? Would you be late in order to see them? How would you interact with them when you came into the building? Would you ignore them or would you be trying to get their attention or be wondering what they were doing? Verse 17 in our reading, as I've said, says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet. This mirrors the response that both Daniel and Ezekiel have in the Old Testament as well. When we worship God, be that here on a Sunday or be at home or wherever we are, we are entering in to God's presence. And we may not fall down at his feet all the time, although, of course, you are welcome. But it's not meant to be the opposite of that either, where, we ha where our worship has very little effect on who we are or how we respond. 
Tom Wright says this, For some, Jesus is just a faraway figure of first century fantasy. For others, including myself, Jesus is the one with whom we can establish a personal relationship of loving intimacy. John, who wrote Revelation, would agree with the second of these, but he would caution against imagining that Jesus is just a cosy figure who merely makes us feel warm inside. To see Jesus face to face would likely cause us to fall at his feet in reverence. I want to be cautious here because uh, we are called to have this intimate relationship with God. And the last thing I want you to hear me say is that I think that we're not. We absolutely are. The point I'm making is that God's presence is meant to be awesome, awe-filled, filled with awe. And so if when we're worshipping God, we're more interested with what's happening on our phones or we're more interested with what's happening over there or outside of the building, or perhaps even more interested by the fact that the worship leader isn't choosing the songs that you particularly like to sing, then perhaps we need to reassess the reasons we've come to worship. Perhaps we need to reassess our connection with God. I think I mentioned this before, but it took me a very long time to understand why it was that people would dance within uh, worship. I could see no reasonable point why anybody would ever dance in worship except perhaps to annoy me, because that seemed to be the only outcome that I could see. And it was only actually on an occasion when Jess, my wife, began to dance, and I understood it. I saw pure joy and worship in her face. She wasn't dancing for me, thank the Lord. She wasn't even caring what I thought of her, thank the Lord. She was so focused on what God was doing in her and through her that her dancing was her only response. And I long for this to be a place where we all feel safe enough to worship God, however it is that we are built, whether that is through dancing, whether it's through waving a flag, whether it's through sign language, as it often is with me, whether it's just in the stillness and the quietness. However it is that we worship God, I love and I'd long for us to feel that this is a place where we can do that freely. And I don't want to leave you with the impression uh, that I'm perfect at this, far from it. Uh, Just indeed last week something happened which distracted me from my worship of God and I allowed it to occupy my thoughts for far longer than I should have done. I have no idea what's going on in you when you worship You will know what's going on in your head, how present you are in that worship, how present you are for the Lord. I suspect this will be a challenge for each of us. We will all have things that from time to time take our attention away from God, take our attention away from this space. And in a moment, I'll give us space to think about our reaction to worship. But just to recap, my three Ps for today. God's power. Are there things in our life, be it Brexit, be it a job, be it finances, be it something else, that are taking so much of a priority over our lives that we're forgetting that God is the king above all things? How do we perceive God and how do we believe that we are perceived by God? Do we know, as the seven churches do, that he knows us and how do we respond to his power and his presence in our life 
Do we treat him like somebody that we once knew and not really that bothered about seeing anymore? Or are we more excited about entering into his presence afresh? I'd love to pray for us. Will you stand with me? Perhaps the band will head back.